So Josh is out of town today, so you get to hear, and then Matt has mouth problems. <laughs> so you get to hear uh, from only me, which means uh, it might be a little harder to pay attention the entire time. You know, have someone to, you know, have different voices to break it up. So I would encourage you to ask any clarifying questions that occur to you as they, as they do, so that we can, that'll help us all stay engaged. And then also Matt's promise to give me a timeout signal if I need to stop and kind of open it up for discussion. So I'm counting on all of you. Okay, so um, we're staying with the doctrine of Christ, the teaching that we can draw from the incarnation and specifically what happens in the life of Jesus. It's really hard to do this in just two Sundays because this is the crux of our faith. But we're unpacking all of it as we go from here, so we, we'll keep returning to Christology, the doctrine of Christ. But for now, I want to, um, so there's several things I want to draw our attention to today that I think are key at this point in the biblical plot line. One is this thread, you know, we talked about this class is called the dramatic logic of scripture. So one thread of logic that winds its way through the drama, we might say, is this notion of God's presence. God wants to dwell with us. So we can think of this unfolding in, so far, three different acts in the drama. Act one, God is with us in the garden. God dwells with humanity in Eden, walks with them in the garden, and there is shalom. Then after the fall, we are exiled from the garden. That exile is the kind of defining feature of human experience. Um, and we're always wanting to get back into this kind of uh, intimate relationship with God which occurs only through the temple presence or the tabernacle. You have to have this kind of special indwelling of God in certain places and times uh, because God can't know humanity generally anymore. Okay? And, and Israel plays this redemptive role that we've been looking at. And now we've come to Act 3, which is incarnational presence. Um, this is where we, we find that uh, the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us, this is the presence of God walking on the earth in the flesh rather than in a man-made temple. Okay, so um, if we remember that the world itself was not made to be stagnant. It was made to develop, move towards a goal or a telos. And in Revelation 21, 22, we are told that what that looks like is uh, where there is no more curse. So that echoes the language in Genesis about the curse that happens in the garden after the fall. Um, so we find that God's purpose for creation is for it to emerge into the state where all is perfect. It is, to, is made to become perfect. And once you introduce a curse into the good creation, that journey is no longer one of just emerging into perfection. Now it's one of there has to be some sort of reversal of the curse. So that's something that we cannot do on our own. It takes God's own life entering into our situation to reverse the curse. So the journey that we're on is reversing the curse, and that's what happens. It's, this is the key moment of that reversal in the messianic event where uh, the word becomes flesh. So um, that's a key claim for today. And another key claim is that this event... Uh, the, the event of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us is eschatological. That means it belongs to the future. Uh, it anticipates and inaugurates 
the telos of creation, the goal. So that future we see in Revelation comes somehow kind of breaks into the present. We can think of it that way. So um, theologians call this a proleptic event. That means somehow the future kind of lapses back into the present somehow. Okay, so this is the future when God will dwell fully with humanity in a renewed earth. Uh, that is inaugurated here at the Incarnation. Okay, so that's, that's a lot right there. Um, and I'm going to unpack a lot of that, so you may have questions already. But just hold on to them, because some of this, I, I hope, will start to kind of come together. Okay, so a, another claim, and I, I gave Matt permission to erase stuff after I referred to it, so you can, you can do that. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, he may want to write some stuff up here. So another claim that's important is when you hear language like the Christ event um, or messianic event, what's that's kind of shorthand for that all of this stuff goes together. Um, you can't parse out what's redemptive. Is it the birth? Is it the death? Is it the resurrection? All of it is redemptive. So all of it belongs together. It needs to be connected in our minds as a redemptive event. So uh, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, ascension, I'm going to touch on each of these as key for defeating sin, evil, and death. So maybe don't, don't erase this yet, but you can get rid of this okay so first let's think about what's happening with the birth um, I've asked Brad to read John 1 1 through 5 and verse 14 so he'll do that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things came into being through him and without him not one thing came into being what has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Thanks. So, um... What can we hear here in terms of the birth? Well, first of all, the, the language of in the beginning, that evokes the notion of creation in Genesis 1. So this takes us back to Act 1, Eden. Uh, we're going back to something, there's something fundamental about creation itself. In the beginning, the Logos was there, the Word. Okay? Uh, the Logos was with God and it was God. We're so used to hearing this that I think sometimes we forget what uh, kind of a, a logical puzzle that is. So what, we, what we're finding here is this paradox of the communal relationship within the Godhead of the Father and the Son. Uh, there's an intimacy there, but also a distinction such that you can't really capture it in language. You're trying to gesture towards it somehow, saying they are together and yet they are the same. Okay. So um, this is further teased out in 1 John chapter 1, who said, where it says, We declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. And then he unpacks it saying it is that of the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So this is the language in Scripture, the language of Father and Son. And that, that Greek word for with, pros, uh, is the same one we find in both of these passages, implies something like it's not just 
I'm sitting there with someone. There's a, it, it's a kind of dynamism happening where it's a moving towards one another, okay? So um, theologians talk about that as being something like a dance, a perichoresis, okay? This, uh, there's a choretic dance happening that the two are one, then you add in the Holy Spirit. The three are so one in their movements with each other that they become, they seem to be one entity. So all of this solidifies our sense of the Son as the divine Logos. Now, what is the Logos? The, I, I probably should have written that up here. Thanks. I'm sure you all are more or less familiar with this word. Um, I was grading some of my students' tests last night, and I said, oh, I'm so, I'm so mad. I feel like I failed. They, they don't know what the Logos is. And my husband was sitting there watching football, and I said, you know what it is, right? And he was like, Sure. It's the word, right? It's, I was like, yeah, but, you know, he's like, I, I don't know. Just tell me what it is. <laughs> so that made me feel a little better because he's, he's, he's a very astute person. So the logos, uh, the notion of the logos is a Hellenistic philosophical construct, and it refers to the principle of order in the world and in the mind, something like uh, the, kind of the reason that holds everything together. That's but it exists in here and out here. And so what John is doing and other early church fathers, they're, they're picking up on this notion as a way of saying, hey, we have something like that. Um, in, in Jewish thinking, this is something like the wisdom of God that is so, it is so one with God that its extension is like an extension of God's self into the world. So what John's saying is the logos, which is this eternal word or plan or vision of God, for the world is is that through which all things came to be and Jesus is this plan or vision this this kind of blueprint for creation the reason for creation which designs and shapes it so what this means for us is that Christ the one who became flesh and dwelt among us is the key to understanding the, the meaning of creation itself to knowing what that design actually is Christ shows us the right order of things of all things. So he's fully God. He's also fully human. And this is what we find really made explicit in the Gospel of Matthew, for example. Uh, Matthew is all about tying Jesus' story to the story of Israel, his lineage to the lineage of Israel. All throughout the book, this is happening. We see him going into Egypt. So this is the story coming through the waters of baptism. Uh, and then he is filled with the Spirit and goes into the wilderness. And then in Matthew 4, we have the inauguration of his ministry. And I'm asked Randall to read uh, 4, verses 12 through 17. When Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went up, and went up to Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Thank you. So the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, this is actually theologically significant because... This is the first territory, gi territory given to Israel that is actually taken by the Assyrians. Um, so it's associated with 
uh, this place, this kind of focal point for renewal of God's covenant promise to Israel, that somehow God is going to make them a great nation and bless them. So when Jesus settles there and is a light dawning in the darkness there, there's this affirmation that God's promises are being fulfilled. Yes. Can I, can I say something? Yes. So, just to help people do this, this is up north in Israel. This is up near the Hula Lake region, which no longer exists. But they they put those people up there because, I mean, literally because they didn't do their job down south. And they were the first to be taken by the Assyrians. You've heard of the Ten Lost Tribes. This is the Ten Lost Tribes. So where does Jesus go his very first ministry? He goes to those ten lost tribes because he's bringing everybody back. Yeah. But let's review just a little bit. Okay. Let's make sure I'm on the right page. Um, so what Lardin sketched out here, and I if I'm wrong, is that when we think about who Christ is, it's really important to understand the notion of the, of the presence of God with man. <laughs> Remember, Emmanuel means God with us, right? And then Act 1, in Eden, the model of presence with man is God walks and talks with Adam in the garden every day. Very intimate. But the curse destroys that. It's replaced by a different kind of presence, right? And that's the presence we find in the Holy of Holies, enshrined in the temple, only the priests visit and only once a year a different kind of presence and the last presence however is the incarnation so far so good mm -hmm. and that's the third presence where God essentially leaves the temple and becomes one of us and you can sort of see how it's a return to that kind of Edenic presence it's not perfect yet, but what we see in Jesus is a forecast of what's going to come mm -hmm. of the plan. And that last reading from Matthew, I think, helps under, help me understand Logos better. Would it, I know this is oversimplistic, but is, would it be fair to say that when we say Logos, we mean something like the big picture? the way we use that sort of... You would have fell on the couch last night. <laughs> I think it, we, we could say it means something like uh, the reason that that permeates the big picture. The kind of, the logic behind all things. The She's looking for Hellenistic. <laughs> well, this is, so this is where I'm going to go. It, it, for the ancient Greeks, right, they tend to see the world as divided between order and disorder. Right? The thing they were always afraid of was what they called chaos. It's, it's where we get our word. And, and for them, chaos was essentially undifferentiated matter. It was, it was a mess. Right? And they believed, the pagan philosophers believed there were certain, the way they explained the order of creation was that they had different ideas about it, but there's that tension between order and disorder. And logos is the word they used for the, the ordering principle, mm -hmm. the thing that creates the page, or that yeah. it's what connects the dots. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 
So, and then correct me if I'm wrong here. The reason to read Matthew, or any of the Gospels, but especially Matthew, is that what Matthew is trying to explain is that we've reached this third stage. He, he's trying to explain that there's a new presence in it. The new presence came with the birth of Christ, who's, incarn who's God incarnate. Right? Mm -hmm. And he's trying to explain that, as Randall points out, to people who have their own history, right, which looks like it's a mess. It doesn't look anything like the Davidic kingdom or the replacement that they thought would come after it. But Matthew's still trying to tie it in with those references to those places into what they understand was the picture. And he's trying to help them understand that this is part of the picture. This is how to understand who he is and why he came. And yeah. back to the Christological question, what this Jesus guy actually is. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, question. But we're, I'm assuming there's four acts, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. So we're not in Act 3. No. Okay. Yeah. So then Act 4 would be the outpouring of the Spirit, and Act 5 is the presence of the church, and that's where we are. Um, and all of these build upon each other. You know, none of these are just, I mean, we still, of course, live into the incarnational reality. So. Sure. No, I'm not today. Okay, cool. So, to back up with Brad, Brad's verse in John, John then says that Jesus came and dwelt among us. And the literal Greek translation of that is he tabernacled among us, which brings that mm -hmm. third deal. Same, same yeah. Thing. Yeah. I should have just had you poke it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you see there, there's a principle there. There's a tabernacle which was later replaced by the temple, right? The impermanent for the permanent, the place where he dwelt while we wandered is replaced by a bigger, better, more beautiful permanent place. And you can see how that fits into the notion of Christ is a, uh, I'm, I'm gonna use this word, I don't mean it literally, but figuratively. Temporarily, God came and dwelt among us in the body and flesh of Christ, right? Which is a forecast of what's, what's going to be made more perfect and more better later. Just like the temple replaced the tabernacle, there's something coming that's going to replace having him right here physically with us. It's coming. Yeah, and it is inaugurated here uh, because of what happens after all of this is completed, which is the outpouring of the Spirit. So, yes. Okay, so to, to keep going... So we have um, the inauguration of Christ's ministry. Something is beginning again. There is light in the darkness. This echoes uh, what happens in Genesis, that God brings light out of the darkness. We have new creation this time. It's not just cre creation itself. It's a new creation. And Jesus' message is, in verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, or is at hand. The kingdom of God is showing up. This means the future is breaking into the present. So uh, the call to repent is 
turn away from the ways that, that would uh, take you into exile, the ways of sin, and get on board with the movement of God in the world. Get on board with your mission. So he's preaching this to Israel first. We can also think about his baptism as key to this. Christ's baptism wasn't about turning away from his wayward sins. It was about entering into the renewal of a people. That's the baptism he received from John. Um, it's about renewing Israel's covenant promises with God to, to live missionally in the world. Okay, and then in Matthew 4, 23, yeah, he, uh, we see a little bit more detail here. Tells us that Jesus is teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom in the synagogues. And he is healing every kind of disease and sickness. So what is the good news he's talking about? It's not until chapter 16 that he even talks about his death and resurrection. So that can't be the good news. The good news is about the kingdom arriving. And the hint to unpacking that is his healing ministry. So in this ministry, we find evidence of his credibility, his glorifying the Father, his compassion for others, and responsiveness to their faith. But, and Josh touched on this last week, the overarching reason is his redemptive agenda, reversing the curse. So Christ's healing says that redemption is not just about forgiveness of sin. It's about God saying, I want to heal every bit of you. I want to heal your bodies, not just your, your soul and spirit. And I think we can, we can unpack other miracles in this context as well. So if you think about Jesus calming the storm or feeding the multitude, this is all about reversing the curse that would lead to starvation or that would lead to what you might call natural evils in creation itself. Uh, so this is all about renewal of creation and healing it. So redemption is multifaceted, um, and it includes these elements that I've written up here. It, uh, all of this event is redemptive, and it defeats sin through forgiveness. It defeats evil through the reconciliation and renewal of peoples, right? And it defeats death through the healing of creation. So Christ is fully human. That's really important um, because it means God has taken the human condition up in the fullness of the human condition to renew it, to recreate it. And so that's why we can also say that Christ is the new human. Christ is the new Adam. Just as Adam and Eve's story, their exile from the garden, became our story, uh, now we are on a journey of return. And that means we get to follow Christ into that return. So Christ is the new Adam in that sense. Uh, questions there? As I'm just kind of jetting through all of this. Yeah. With the Messianic event, <coughs> I assume that all of those things have to be checked before to reverse the curse. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so there are people out there of various beliefs who we may not believe all of those things. Yeah. So What's that? I mean, how do they see Jesus as reversing the curse, or do they see Jesus as reversing the curse if they do not believe one of the sins? I think what can easily happen is that we focus on one of these elements to, to the neglect of some of the others. Um, for example, in the Church of Christ tradition, we might have focused too much on the death and resurrection and not given enough attention to the life and the outpouring of the Spirit that happened at the Ascension. And so I think what you end up 
getting is you get this kind of truncated version of, of redemption. And it, it's not addressing perhaps all of these elements. Right? That we, we ended up focusing on sin, but not thinking as much about evil and death. Yeah. That's a really good question. I think in the, in the world, more, more broadly speaking, a lot of us know people who believe that there was a historical figure named Jesus. But, but that, that's not the gospel. That's not enough of the story to undo the curse. A lot of people believe that, yes, he lived, and of course he died because we're all human. The resurrection for them is a myth. Or... That's not why the gospels were written. They're written to say, no, this is what happened. He, he rose again. Does that make sense? It's, it's not enough to believe that there was a Jesus or that he actually died. The gospel is that, yeah, he died, and believe it or not, we want you to believe he rose again. And that's not the end of it either. But there's another stage, and this is the forecast for the other, for the element. Yeah, element. that's right. So, so I have a question here in, in terms of thinking about the miracles. And one of the problems, I think, for a lot of people is that it was a great thing that Jesus came and started doing the miracles, and that with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, in the early church, the apostles performed miracles, right? People were healed, some were raised from the dead. And kind of the unspoken downer in all of that is, so where did all that go? I mean, despite the fact that we sometimes hear of a miraculous event here or there, I think for some of us it's hard to get our heads around the fact that if that's what reversing the curse means, how come, how come we're still dying? And how come we're still sick? And why is there still cancer? And our Christ hasn't come back yet. And I'm, I'm wondering if the way to understand this whole part about reversing the curse is just as Christ came here kind of like the tabernacle to show us that those miracles came kind of like the tabernacle to show us that the curse had been reversed, death had been defeated, sin had been um, expiated, evil will not win, but it's not all going to happen yet. It's Those miracles yeah. didn't uh, sputter out, which is the way I tended to think about it and the way I was raised. At, at the end of the first century in the close of the book of Acts, we're done with miracles. We don't need them anymore. I think that's also a falsehood, too. We need miracles just like we always did. People still, we, we need redemption. We're still mortal. But the way to understand miracles, the miraculous, is that they were signals yep. of what's true, what will be universally true one day. And that's a way of not being disappointed when they don't happen for us every day. Yeah. Is, that, is that accurate? Yes. You can think of uh, what's happening as, at, in terms of Christ's healing ministry and the apostles is authenticating their ministry and in terms of giving these kind of glimpses, these foretastes of what is to come, um, but, but it has not come in full. So we still have the same, you're right, we still have the same responsibilities here and we still have to do everything we can 
to combat sin, evil, and death. And we have the Holy Spirit that's given to us for that purpose. But yeah, in terms of why didn't it come in full? Well, we have to trust that God is unfolding this plan in some sort of mysterious way in time. So, yeah. How, how do you compare the term messianic event to what we used to call the atonement? Are they synonymous? Are they subtly different? Or are they radically different? Um, they go hand in hand. So I would say atonement is a function of the event. So the whole event has an atoning okay. feature. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you think the de-emphasis of the functional uh, life and morals and teachings, as Thomas Jefferson would say, of Jesus, I mean, that has been de-emphasized from Nicene only, right? From, I mean, the creeds, you know, Jesus mm-hmm. was born of a virgin, died, suffered Pontius Pilate, excludes the, the teaching and functional life of Jesus from very early on in the history of the church. Is that right and on purpose, or is it missing? Uh, is it missing a, a key element of the life of the church from yeah. very early on? How do you see that? I think the concerns of the people who wrote the creeds were all about working out certain points of conflict in their doctrine, and so they weren't as concerned with that feature. But I think you're right to point it out as something that what ends up perhaps being kind of handed down in church teaching is uh, something that overlooks the significance of that to a certain degree. Now there's, there's always uh, efforts at renewing attention to the kind of moral and ethical calling of living as Christians. But again, going back to what happens when we neglect certain aspects of this as salvific, what we can end up doing is forgetting that, oh yeah, Christ lived in such a way that was redemptive. That's how we are supposed to live as well. It's not all about just having our sins forgiven. or It's not all about just enjoying the benefits of resurrection someday. It's about living in a redeemed manner. Just like it's not just about the morality and the ethos exemplified by the craft. It, that, that's an essential piece right. of the whole. Right, but that hasn't been a problem of the church, right? This yeah, is the Jesus to seminar it. and the historical Jesus movement, but for the most part, the church has gotten in trouble when it's centered on evangelistic or staying out of hell, converting people to converting people, and forgetting about the life and teaching and radical nature of the life of Jesus, yeah. which is the thing that tends to transform the world around us, right? Yes. What Laura's making me think, and I could be wrong about this, is that are correcting, I think, the way I've tended to look at the life of Christ, which was everything up to the up to the resurrection was just a prelude. Right? Mm-hmm. The important thing was that he popped up out of the grave, not to be blasphemous, but that, that's that's what made him Jesus. And what Lauren is making me think, when we think about the, the dramatic logic of Scripture, is that the moment of his birth made a statement that was as important as. <clears throat> touching the lepers that made a statement that was as important as him being abandoned in the garden that made a statement about who God is that's just as important as his resurrection on that Sunday morning that's just as important as his ascension does that make sense? Absolutely. everything all of a sudden comes to the top of the page instead of some being the really important things and yeah. some not. Is that yep. accurate? 
And that also goes back to the notion of why is the Logos an important concept? It's because Christ's very life, his manner of living, interprets um, or shows us what the design of creation was meant to be. So this is what it means to live a truly human life. It's the one way of thinking of that. So let's think a bit about what's happening with the death and resurrection um, in the last, yeah, we've got, we've got a little bit. Okay, so um, what's happening here is a journey of reversing the curse. We could think of that as undoing the exile from Eden, uh, exile from intimacy with God. But uh, the undoing of the exile is not painless. In Luke 9.22, Jesus emphasizes uh, that the eschatological reality will not fully come until the Son of Man has suffered and died. So the question is, why? Why must he suffer and die? Why isn't it enough just to live this fully human life? Uh, well, some of, some of this brings us up against mystery, that we're not really sure why for all of these things, but we can piece it together based on the rest of the biblical plot line. But what we find, and we can also piece it together if you think back to the quadrilateral we've used, what happens in our own experience? What, what do we know just based on trying to live as disciples of Jesus in the world? And we, what we find over and over is that when God's reign breaks into the world, it, it's not just overcoming the powers of sin, evil, and death, but it is in conflict with them. There's a conflict here. These are the powers which enslave Israel and the whole world. It's not just about Roman oppression. It's the forces opposed to God's habitation, forces that are hell-bent on ways of violence and injustice, captivity, sickness, poverty, all of it. And those powers have an agenda. When they encounter a peacemaker, those powers want to crush the peacemaker. They want their own version of peace and security. So ultimately, uh, this conflict leads to the cross. This is what the four gospels lead to, and it is what Christ assures us we will face if we follow him. So it remains significant that the sacrifice happens in the context of Passover. Um, here we have the rescue from the powers, if you think about the release from captivity in Egypt. And we also have the atoning blood of the sacrificial lamb. So in reflecting upon what happens at the crucifixion, uh, Christians discern that in Christ there is a submissiveness to God's plan. There's a faithfulness that goes all the way to the cross. The faithfulness of the Messiah arises out of the willingness of the Son, the second member of the Godhead, to become flesh to go through each of these steps, we might say, and to follow that mission all the way to its conclusion, even if it leads to the cross. And there is something effective at the cross because of Jesus' suffering. So what the cross does is uh, several things. It overcomes sin so that Israel and all of humanity are released from exile from the burden of being in bondage to sin, because we could think of, how does it do that? We can think of it as taking out the full extent of the human experience into the life of God, including death, something God cannot know unless God becomes incarnate. 
It also defeats the powers of sin, of evil, rather, because those powers did not defeat Jesus, because he is resurrected. He's not abandoned in the grave. So God becomes human in order to take up into God's own life the reality of human brokenness. There is a real abandonment here. Jesus is abandoned to death, but not in the grave. On the other side of the cross is the empty tomb, and that is a crushing blow to death. So we see here again, sin, evil, and death are defeated in the, in the cross and resurrection. And then we anticipate this final step, ascension, which is the moment of Christ's enthronement and the inauguration of new creation. The outpouring of the Spirit happens after this. We're going to look at this next week, the importance of the ascension. And so, again, thinking about Christ as the new human and this journey is our journey, we look forward to moving through these steps. Death, why is death still here? This is the reality. We live in the now and not yet of the, the kingdom, the arriving kingdom. And yet, what we have been assured is the resurrection. Christ is the first fruits of, of those who will come after him. He's the first up that has been resurrected from the dead and who stayed alive, so to speak. Anyone else in scripture who was resurrected from the dead died again. He's the one who was resurrected and ascended to be at the right hand of God. That journey will be our journey. So this is a whole event. The whole thing is the atoning work of God, not just the crucifixion, not just the life, not just the resurrection, all of it. And it is God's action, God sacrificing God's own self. The one responsible for new creation cannot be less than the one responsible for creation itself. Only God's life can deal with the curse of sin, evil, and death. And we can think of that as God's very essence as love overwhelms that curse. So that's all for my material. So we can open it up for, for general discussion or questions or points of clarification. God than Jesus. Yeah. Uh, that kind of gets into Trinitarian doctrine, but um, a short answer to that is that um, the members of the Godhead are all equally involved in every moment, every act of God. And you know, I mean, you've been to seminary, so I'm kind of saying this for, you know. So um, the submissiveness, maybe a, there could be other ways of framing that. You could say that um, Jesus is so given over to this mission. He's so enraptured by it, right? Um, there's a kind of faithfulness, obedience, willingness, goodness, you know, however we want to frame that, but that it's not just about saying no to me and yes to you, God. It's more about a kind of wholehearted giving myself over into this mission. So um, that might be a better way of framing it. So submissive a, can be kind of... Didn't consider equality of God, but God something he could really grasp right. and hold on to. There was, yeah. there was some element of putting himself a little bit below. 
least yeah. for a period of time. Yeah, that, there's in the Philippians hymn, um, what we see there is that equality with God is not something that wants to be expo- he wants to exploit. Right. So he, there's an embrace of um, the humility of the Son, the willingness to become flesh and dwell among us is a pattern for Christian living. For going to, this is why we are called to live into the same sort of pattern, which is our power, our whatever that may be, is not something to exploit, but rather to use to serve the mission of God in the world to redeem it. And a pattern for Israel's obedience to Torah in the beginning. Right. Yeah, so we get into trouble when we think of the submission apart from, I think, the joy and being in love with this, right? It's not just about saying no to what I want, but rather learning to want this, like training our desires so that this is our, this fulfills us. Could that also be a part of the human component of his submissiveness? I mean, he's, yeah. he's kind of processing both from the God-man perspective, but the man part of him still has to give in to something bigger. Yeah, we certainly see that conflict playing out um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that prayer of let this cup pass. There's the, the human part of him that is struggling with this. Can this really, am I going to go all the way through this suffering? Um, so, there, yeah, his, his, the human part of him also has to move through temptation. And we have to believe that's real in some sense, or it wouldn't be meaningful. It wouldn't be redemptive. This discussion to me also reminds me, in our tradition at least, how uncomfortable we are with the notion of mystery especially in its, its deepest theological sense. A, a mystery is something, <coughs> I think I said it before, a riddle is a puzzle. We, we just haven't found the answer yet, but there's an answer that will solve everything rationally. A mystery is, is a thing we don't understand. There's not a missing piece that we can find. It's a mystery. And I think when, we, when Lauren uses the word mystery, especially as it's used in trying to figure out things like what's exactly the relationship of those three members of the Trinity and that's why that term mystery came to be used it's, it's we can't explain how it works we just see that it works and I think that's difficult for some of us in some traditions we're uncomfortable with mystery we like to have an explanation a proof text an answer for everything and sometimes the answer is it's a mystery Another question. I like, I like the, the thought of it being a mystery. And, and we are uncomfortable with that. I know I am. Um, but part of the mystery also is, it, and I maybe I'd like to know your thought on it. I'm not sure how many acts, I'm not sure we know exactly how many acts this story has. And a constant in the dramatic logic.
think um, the one kind of sticking point with that is that is this claim that we're making that with this act that the future has somehow broken into the present. So we don't know exactly how it's all going to unfold, but the claim we're making as Christians is that we know that resurrection awaits us. We know that Christ is has been set above all things and all things are being set under his feet in some sense. We don't know exactly how that's all playing out. So um, I think that's probably where it, we would get into the complexity of it. So what exactly does that mean? But one thing I appreciate that you're pointing out is that what we tend to do is assume that we know how that's going to happen or we know how that's going to play out or we think we can kind of predict it somehow. And what we're not realizing is there may be some like major shifts that are still occurring that God is working in ways that we wouldn't expect or, or discern towards this being the reality that we all experience. Okay, we have two minutes before we... Um, I'm not sure what about this class has made me think about this so much, but if my grandmother was sitting here, she would be completely lost. <laughs> and she read the Bible every single year for many, many years. So is there a danger in us getting too in the weeds with, and missing some big pictures that are more simple? So, I mean... Yeah. In other words, why do we need theologians? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to think of how to answer this. Doesn't just, I can't answer that question. Justify my existence. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> 90 seconds. Yeah, sure. Please. I, I, I would just say that that, you know, I've thought about that many, many times. My grandmother did not have a third, edu third grade education, but she read her Bible, even though it would take her a week to read a page. And for me, that is the beauty of the complexity of Scripture, that, that you can have a, a Lauren wife that grows up as a young girl and says, I want to go deeper. But yet, some of us are comfortable where we are, and that's the beauty of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, how it works for Yeah. That's a good analogy, though, when we talk about weeds. Remember, weeds, reeds are somebody else's herbs. Yeah. And, and part of it has to do with what you think weeds are. Anything that impedes what you already believe is weeds. Right? Or anything that makes you uncomfortable is either irrelevant or heresy. And I, and I think, to justify Lauren's job, <laughs> good, the, good theologians ask us to think about what we have thought and try to help us discern the path, the true path, through the way. There are lots of paths. We're good at building paths, especially ones that are more con more convenient to us than others. But I think, although this, this can seem arcane, right, it, it's hard to talk about things that are complex, especially those things that approach mystery, the mystery that God is and always will. Does that make sense? Um, I think it's also... There's also a danger in writing complexity off. Mm -hmm. Saying, well, all you really need to believe is X and Y. Pick, pick whichever X's and Y's you want. Because that's a refusal to respect mystery. 
Does that make sense? It's it's a double-edged sword. <coughs> I would suggest also it's not just a matter of simple versus complex either. You know, my grandmother would have been the same way, but each one of us come to Scripture interpreting it through a certain lens. I think what theologians are trying to do is help us change our lens. Maybe this is just as simple if we have a change of viewpoint, change of perspective. And I think it's kind of like eyesight. You know, as you get older, young, older, I'll get younger. <laughs> your, your eyes change, right? It's, it's a function of what happens to you in the world. And, and lenses need readjusting. Not, not that they were wrong at that point in your life, but they're not working now, or they don't help you see what you need to see now. Maybe that's another way to stretch your analogy a little bit without going too far. That lens, that lens analogy, I think, is a really useful analogy. 